The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to read along with me as I read God's Word in Acts chapter 15. We're right at the middle exactly in terms of amount of text at least of the book of Acts. We're more than halfway through because I won't be spending as long on some of the things that remain, not that they're unimportant, but there are some lengthy sermons and things that are repetitive of things we've dealt with before. We will be looking at Acts for a couple more months yet. Acts 15, a crucial time in the history of the Christian church. Listen as I read the first 21 verses. This takes place in the, in the city of Antioch, north of Jerusalem. Some men came down there from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So now, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, Listen to me, Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let us ask what God is telling us today to consider and observe out of this his own holy word. You might think about those who do ministry in the way perhaps that I do or other pastors or elders or church teachers. And you think, well, ministry is about preaching and teaching and counseling people and praying with people. And it is that. It's all those things. But all of us who are leaders in ministry know that there's another activity that consumes a lot of time in ministry. The dreaded word, meetings. We all go to meetings. I've joked many times that ministers must be exempt from meetings in heaven because we've more than put in our quota here on earth. We go to meetings to manage ministry and do it in godly ways and come to agreement with brothers and sisters, about how things should be done. Meetings can be boring. If they're managed badly, they can be very interesting. You're not fully aware of it, but Westminster's five pastors meet every Thursday fairly early in the day. So one time we we all know that we're pledged to be in the same room together, and we have things to communicate, prayer concerns, matters in the congregation happening, and we pray. We pray for you. We go through the church directory and pray for a number of families each Thursday morning. And then we pass immediately from that and the entire staff joins us for a meeting in which more essential communication goes on and valuable things are are communicated to just keep us on track as a staff. And then every week, practically, there are committee meetings, the worship committee, the the Great Commission Committee, the Building Committee, many others that have to deal with aspects of our whole ministry. And then there's the meetings of the elders and the meetings of the deacons. You see, somehow they expect me to be at all of them or most of them. And we meet and we review finances and we make policies and we solve problems and we set goals and we approve volunteers to head things up. And hopefully the ministry stays on track. And then you never see the quarterly meetings that elders and pastors go to. We were just there a week ago Saturday at Presbytery in our region, spend a whole day. We were kept awake at our Presbytery meeting a week ago because the urban older church building we arrived at did not have the furnace going for some reason when we got there. It was about, I would say, in the low 50s in the sanctuary. And uh, we were kept from slumbering, let's say as we all wished we had coats on. Then we go, many of us, to our denominations, General Assembly meeting once a year in the month of June. And these are meetings where business is being done on a wider scale with more people, and so you need to 
to use a kind of language of procedures, motions, amendments, time limits for speeches, points of order, quorums, and and that's a, a process by which you get things done. It is also frequently punctuated by prayer. I like a tradition at our General Assembly that has been around for many years, and it's not always observed, but often the speaker gets up to address the whole body, which is as many as a thousand delegates, and we want to make a point in some debate or argument, and the way you're supposed to address the body is to say, fathers and brothers. I remember when I first encountered that, I wondered, who are the fathers anyway? Uh, nobody wears a you know, name badge that says, I'm a father. But you look around and you begin to see those who have been leaders in the denomination a long time, who are wise and godly, and you begin to realize, indeed, I'm addressing people who have much more experience than I. It's a humbling thing. And I'm also addressing brothers. Maybe just by making that salutation, you're reminding yourself. I'm not here as an arrogant person to tell everyone what they don't know or, or to tell them of my great omnipotent wisdom. I'm here to, to learn and to share wisdom with my fathers and my brothers. And although tedium can certainly be a part of church meetings of all kinds, there are real benefits when the Lord's work is done in the way Paul said, decently and in good order. You do see over time how the Spirit of God molds the minds of those who participate in these things and come to these meetings humbly and believe that the Lord has more wisdom in the room than they brought in inside their own little brain as we pray and as we look for the principles of his word to be worked out in the church. Well, I'm suggesting to you that in Acts 15, we have one of the epic church meetings of the entire New Testament. It's called the Jerusalem Council. A time when the church consulted together, apostles and elders, a number of people, we don't know exactly how many came together in Jerusalem because there was a great problem that had to be solved. It it was a problem so serious, it literally could have wrecked the church. You see, there were more and more Gentiles being won to Christ. Remember, the church started in Jerusalem among people who were almost entirely Jewish-born who had walked in the faith of Israel, but then received Christ and called him their Lord. Well, then it expanded out. We've seen that in Acts. I won't go back over it all. And that epic day when Peter had the breakthrough with Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and Peter himself was rather amazed that God's spirit came upon Cornelius the same as upon any Jew. Well, we're well beyond that now, years beyond that. And hundreds and hundreds of People throughout the Roman region, far afield now, are coming to put their faith in Christ. Here we are. This council was back in Jerusalem in headquarters where things were still more or less controlled because Peter made that his main base and other uh, apostles of Jesus were still there. And yet, less and less were these people absorbed in or, or soaked in a background of ethnic Judaism. And they didn't have the understanding of the Old Testament. And now this question has come up, how much obedience to the Old Testament law does a person have to have to be an authentic Christian? 
Specifically, does a man have to be circumcised according to Old Testament ritual to be saved? That was the question. Notice according to uh, verse 1, these were, there were people actually saying, unless you are circumcised by the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They weren't saying you were a second-class believer. They were saying you don't belong to God unless you've obeyed this law. Well, I would admit this might seem like an obscure dispute if taken just on the face of it for us. This isn't a problem that's probably been weighing on anyone's mind here. But the problem in its principial form is what else needs to be added to God's pure grace in salvation? Whether it's a doctrine of baptism, whether it's a particular ritual you would go through in in some religious exercise, what else do we need besides the grace of God in Christ? And you see, when you consider it that way, the principle is the same exactly as what Luther faced in the Reformation. When he stood up to a church that said, well, we need to do this, and, and we need to understand that the Mass is the literal body and blood of Jesus here, and And we need to sell these indulgences over here that can get people out of purgatory. And Luther said, no, no, no to all of that. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is the pure and central, essential thing. That's what was happening here. And the Jerusalem Council did have a happy conclusion. We can see, even before we talk about it a little more, it averted a crisis. It greatly enhanced the spread of global Christianity. But had it not been guided by the Lord as it was, great difficulty and great problems would have emerged. First of all, then, we look at verses 1 to 5 here and see a difficulty unwrapped. What was the difficulty that was unwrapped here at this council? Again, it was evangelism to the Gentiles. Jews who are called of the Pharisee party, the more strict law-observant party, letter-of-the-law people, They understood the gospel of Christ. They were presumably trusting in Christ. They weren't saying, you know, become Jews and don't be Christians. They were saying, to be a Christian, you have to do the things that God told us of Israel to do in the Old Testament. Therefore, Gentiles must bow before ceremonial laws. I'd invite you for a few minutes, if you would, to turn to the letter of Galatians in your New Testament. You might want to follow a few. I'm going to give you a handful of references you might want to look at or just scan as I'm speaking. The letter of Galatians was one of the earliest of Paul's letters. We believe it was written just before these events in Acts 15. So it had been sent out. What Paul had to say in Galatians pertained to this exact situation. It was sent to churches affected by this situation. And It doesn't take too much reading to see that as Paul writes to churches that he and Barnabas have already visited in the region called Galatia to the north, he's a little upset. That's a big understatement. I don't know of any letter of the Bible that I can think of where the author's more upset starting out than Galatians. Paul is mad. He's hot under the collar. And he's writing about these very people who had gone about saying, look, you've heard what Paul said, that you Gentiles can just trust Christ and that's it. 
no, no, you have to do this, and you have to do this. Paul says in Galatians 1.6 that this is a different gospel. He says, don't listen to anybody who's preaching a different gospel. In 1.9 of Galatians, he says, anyone preaching this different gospel, in other words, that mixes in Old Testament laws with faith in Christ, should be accursed. He doesn't say, I mildly disagree with that point of view, does he? He says, that person is not speaking the truth. May God curse the untruth that he's teaching you. Galatians 3.1, he asks them a question, these Galatian churches. Who has bewitched you that you would turn in a direction like this? And then in 2.16, he states his central thesis. He says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important for you to remember who's speaking. This is the former Saul of Tarsus. The very same guy who was so zealous for the law of God that he was just like this Pharisee party that he's now pitted against, he in fact is opposing the very kind of teaching that he himself once went about promulgating and saying, this is the truth, and he was ready to throw people in jail who didn't agree with his position. God, of course, has turned Saul of Tarsus around 180 degrees. Now he's Paul the Apostle. He even has his Roman name now, and he's the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, I preach salvation in Christ for all men and women. And he was opposing the very people that were teaching his old way of thinking. Look at Galatians 2.11. Interesting little incident there. Apparently Peter, who already knew that Gentiles could be saved, had stopped, you know, obeying the sort of ban where a Gentile didn't eat with a Jew, and and Peter had begun to eat with his Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. But then somebody got a hold of him, whispered in his ear, and said, hey, Peter, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be doing that. The Old Testament forbids that. And Peter pulled back and stopped eating with Gentile friends. What happened when he did that? Mr. Paul came along and was very aggressive. Remember, he's the, he's the newcomer apostle. And he's speaking to Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus. And Paul says in Galatians 2.11, I opposed Peter to his face. I said, you're wrong, Peter. I don't care who you are. You're wrong if you won't sit down and have table fellowship with these Gentile believers who are your brothers in Jesus Christ. Paul didn't think he was talking about a minor issue of table manners. He was talking about the truth of the gospel and the fellowship, the new community that it creates. Paul said, here's what the law was about in Galatians 3.24. The law, he said, was intended to lead us to Christ. Does the law have an important function? Of course it does. It shows us our need. It shows us our sin. And it brings us to the feet of Christ to believe in him. And then in 3.28, he comes to the great resounding conclusion, you might say, of this whole letter of Galatians when he says, because of Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free. All are one in Christ. Now, what I want to stress to you is that these kinds of fireworks have gone on just before the Jerusalem Council. This is the kind of rhetoric and dialogue that has gone on. Fiery words, blunt opposition. 
And as they gather in Jerusalem, you wonder if they were thinking, is this all going to break out? Is there going to be a big fight here? Are we, are we going to be able to find any basis of agreement at all? But they came knowing that nothing less than the correct path of Christian salvation was at stake. Insistence on the idea that Old Testament legal obedience plus grace was needed had to go as far as Paul was concerned. All right, then. Secondly, we look at the actual discussion of this Jerusalem conference, and I'm just going to sketch it, of course, but discussion that we say is based on God's revelation. Aren't we all frustrated by our our Congress and the White House and those who lead our land right now? Inability to talk to one another, inability to somehow get together, make a deal, work it out, create a budget. We all sit and say, what did we elect these people for? To sit at two opposite ends and throw rocks and say, why, if they would get straightened out or if he would get straightened out, and then there's this great big territory in the middle that nobody is willing to step onto. Well, maybe that would have happened here. And I think it would have, but for the grace of God and the word of God. You wonder if all of these first century leaders understood that God was not changing the terms of salvation, but now he was fulfilling that which the Old Testament had begun to teach. He wasn't taking the Old Testament away, but he was bringing the fulfillment of it. That now, instead of Jewish rituals and a big rule book you'd have to thumb through to see if you had obeyed rule number 69B today or not, the point was, had the law led you to Jesus Christ so that you professed him as Savior and Lord and you bowed before him and received baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Were you a disciple of Jesus? That was the point now. Well, they talked it out. People got up and began to speak. Verse 7 says that there had been much debate first. The leaders didn't speak first. But then Peter got up, and you can naturally think they would pay attention. And, and he began to talk of what God had done through him, how the Holy Spirit had, had come upon Cornelius, the Gentile soldier. And maybe he told about that proconsul in Cyprus who was one to Jesus. But he says, God, who knows men's hearts, gave Gentiles his Holy Spirit the same as he did for us. The same manifestations, the same signs of a changed life were seen in them. God has made no distinction. And so he speaks to his Jewish friends and says, why would you then put a yoke of law on the back of these Gentile converts that even we Israelites have been unable to bear? You see what Peter's saying? He's saying, look, God's law is great. It's magnificent. And yet all of us know that the main thing it does is tell us what kind of sinners we are and shows us the perfections of God and how in our own strength we cannot obey in such a way as to attain righteousness. So it puts a yoke on us. It's just reminding us all the time of how we cannot do what it asks. Now that's a function that God wants it to have. But Peter says, look, Even we who have known this from our youth in our synagogues find that the law acts like a yoke telling us how disobedient we are. Do we want to do that to our Gentile friends who've already found freedom in Christ? 
And he concludes here in verse 11, we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so will the Gentiles. Let's give them the yoke of Christ. And what is that? Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. My yoke sets people free. It doesn't enslave them. It gives them a transformed life. Well, verse 12 says, when Peter got done talking, there was a a meaningful silence. The big gun had sounded. I remember an occasion at our General Assembly, there might be a couple of men here who remember this. A few years ago, our assembly was debating a very important matter that was of great concern to some people. And there was a lot of debate going on. I was sitting fairly far forward in the hall, and there were hundreds of people behind me where and many, many microphones at which speakers would be recognizing. So I, you know, I heard rather than, than saw in the midst of the debate as we got to kind of a critical point. And, and again, there are those that are the fathers as well as the brothers, the highly respected voices of the assembly. And I was sitting there half paying attention when all of a sudden I heard a microphone being recognized and, and you're supposed to identify yourself. So I heard the speaker say, R.C. Sproul, Central Florida Presbytery. Oh, everyone in the hall was suddenly alert. R.C. Sproul actually showed up at General Assembly, and he had something very important to say. It was a, it was a turning point in the whole debate, and it really kind of rallied things because of his ability, his rhetoric as a speaker to bring us together. I think that's what Peter was like here. But then we have a speech from another notable, and you haven't met this one before. Remember, James, who was the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was killed. This is not that James. He's, he's dead. There's another James. He's called James the Just, not one of the twelve. Actually, the half-brother of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. One of those who didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah while Jesus was still alive, but he came to faith as a Jewish man. He now believes that his half-brother was the son of God on earth. And James was actually the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now he speaks, and he does something really important here in verses 15 and 16, which you'll see if you're looking at your text is set off as a quotation. It's a quotation from an Old Testament minor prophet, Amos chapter 9. And what James does here is very significant. He says, look, I think there's a word we all need to hear that God spoke a long time ago through his prophets and said, when in the latter days I rebuild the tent of David, in other words, I restore things that had fallen apart since the reign of David, I rebuild its ruins, here's what I'm going to do, and all the Gentiles called by my name will come in to the family of God. You see the tremendous wisdom of what James the just did here. He said, look, this is nothing other than what God predicted a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, that the Gentiles would come into his kingdom. The great thing he did, in other words, was open his Bible and say, surely this is what God is teaching us. Look what he has already said and revealed. And after these speeches, a decision was obvious. The the council got together. They said, look, we shouldn't require anything more of the Gentiles, verse 19, than that we ask them to perhaps not do some particularly objectionable things that, that would offend us, but we're not going to put any 
requirements on them, we'll write them a letter. And, and the rest of the chapter basically tells you about that letter. I didn't read all of that, but just look at verse 28 of chapter 15 for a moment there. Acts 15:28, where the summary statement comes, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these simple requirements. Don't offend us with, with sexual immorality and eating things with the blood in and so on. We're not going to burden you. Why? Because we've looked at what the Holy Spirit has done in history and we've listened to the word of God. And therefore the church made an important decision that carried the gospel forward in many directions and many conversions. Now, there's just two applications I want to bring from this this morning as I close. What we can take, I think, for ourselves from, for practical instruction, and the main point is the main point, that salvation in Jesus Christ is the work of God by his grace alone plus nothing from a religious tradition or human action. Grace plus nothing is the central principle here. The gospel of the cross and resurrection assumes that Jew and Gentile are alike in their unworthiness before God and alike in their incapability of assisting him in redemption. Now, most people would say, well, all right, I think I believe that, and yet then they go off and preach a gospel that doesn't sound exactly like that or act in their own life as if the gospel said, well, Jesus Christ has done 75%. Think of that. He's done 75% of what you need to be saved. If you'll just hold up 25%, you'll be fine. Well, it's a good thing the gospel doesn't even say Jesus Christ did 99% and you have to do 1% because I can't do 1% not of anything that would approximate the righteousness of God or would complete my salvation. And yet, people act that way as if it's grace plus something. And the gospel is grace plus nothing. Now, you're saying to me, wait a minute, don't I have to have good works in my life? Indeed you do. When God is truly working in a Christian life, all kinds of fruit comes on that tree because that tree has the life of Christ in it. And we look for fruit. We look for what we call good works that people do. But those good works are fruit. They are not the seed or the root. They're byproducts of God's work of salvation. And it's still grace plus nothing else. Another great application, I think, that Acts 15 shows us is to weigh and appreciate and give praise to God for the value of godly leaders who will listen to the work of the Holy Spirit and observe that and observe the teaching and principles of the Word of God as they make decisions for the church. What if Peter had stood up and said, Folks, I've been thinking about this a long time, and I feel, and my opinion is, and then James stood up and said, Well, I feel, and my opinion is, neither one of them did that, did they? They didn't feature their own opinions. One stood up and said, look what I've seen the Holy Spirit do. It has to be the Spirit of God. There's no other explanation. The other one stood up and said, open to me, open along with me to Amos 9. Look what God says in his holy word. And when they made arguments on that basis, their arguments were indisputable. 
not their opinions, not their political party, not their religious traditions, not their peculiar practices. This was spiritual leadership that was searching out the will of God. And so they could say, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. God's revealed way. Most of you don't sit in session meetings. You don't go to Presbytery. You don't go to General Assembly. But you know what you can do? You can pray for those whom you've elected to go to those places to listen to and observe the work of the Holy Spirit and pay close attention to the principles of the Word of God as they make decisions that guide the church of Christ so that we can attain what the Scripture calls the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. I consider it a tremendous privilege. I'm not here to flatter our leaders. I'm here to tell you the facts. It is a privilege to me to serve in a church where, by and large, this is what happens. Thanks be to God. You have godly people at every level, at your committees, in your elders, in your deacons, in your deaconesses, godly people who want a church that's directed God's way. Pray that we'll keep it that way, that we'll not put human traditions or denominational peculiarities or secondary doctrines in the way. There's so many things that are secondary that are important to discover and and talk about and consider for what place they might have in the Christian life, but they're not necessarily primary. Grace is absolutely primary to the exclusion of everything else that would get close to it. Because grace includes every repentant man or woman I'm every nation of the world and every skin color and every language and every background and says, bow before Jesus Christ. Name his wonderful name as your Lord. Humbly follow him as a disciple. And you're his. Not grace plus becoming a good American first. Not grace plus be a Republican Not grace plus be a Presbyterian. Not grace plus believe in infant baptism, important as we think that is. Grace plus nothing is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I call you, friends, to be a church that prays for leaders who will stand as these apostles and elders did of old on the rock of the word of God, committed to grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is a gospel that can triumph against anything. Our Father, thank you for the lessons of history. This time a positive one as we see your church making good decisions, making decisions that your spirit had ordered and directed. We pray to be such a church We admit, Lord, that we stumble around and and sometimes we have our own ideas and those have to be pursued for a while and thrashed out until we realize maybe that really isn't what the Lord wants. Make us people who are attentive to your word, listening to each other, humble about our own proposals that we might see the fruit of the gospel, lives naming Jesus as Lord and being changed in our midst. We pray this to your honor and praise through Jesus Christ. Amen.